no reason to exist. Hello. Hey, Mommer. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. So, when's the last time you've been in the basement? Not too long ago, but I can't remember what I was looking for. So I'm just trying to remember or figure out if the Atlas Shrugged Ball is still down there. Um, if it is, I didn't see it. You remember that object? Got a lot of duct tape on it? Yes. Yeah. It's about the size of a beach ball, maybe? Yeah, I didn't see it. Okay. Interesting. But I never threw it away. Yeah, I don't think I did either. <laughs> it's probably still down there. In case you haven't heard of Atlas Shrugged, it's one of the two best-selling novels written by Ayn Rand. The other was The Fountainhead, but Atlas Shrugged was her magnum opus. It was published in 1957, and it took her about 14 years to write. Sometime during my senior year of high school, or maybe during the summer afterwards, I tore out every single page of my copy of Atlas Shrugged, and I crumpled them up and taped them all together into a ball. My friends and family who know about it call it Atlas Shrugged Ball. It's probably still in the basement of the house where I grew up. Why did I turn a book into a ball? The story begins a year before with my friend Kevin. I think my first memory of this is it was summertime, Brandon's mm -hmm. over my house, there was a party that night, like a drinking type of party, and so we wanted you to come, and I called you up, and you said, what are you celebrating? And then the other thing was, I don't go to parties. Yes, I, I totally believe that that occurred, but I don't remember that incident. That must have been, obviously, sometime after I've been, quote-unquote, indoctrinated, and probably before you were. Yes. Because I don't know exactly how long I was held in sway, in a manner of speaking. Really, for me, the doorway, I guess, was <laughs> was kind of rush. That they, they, you know, they did a song, you know, 2112, and then and another song, Anthem. That was a little snippet of Anthem by Rush, and the lyrics are, Live for yourself. There's no one else more worth living for. Begging hands and bleeding hearts will only cry out for more. And that sentiment there is straight out of Ayn Rand. She was all about rational self-interest and the evils of altruism. Most of the lyrics to Rush's songs were written by the drummer, Neil Peart who somehow found inspiration in the work of Ayn Rand. The liner notes of the 2112 album include this line, With acknowledgement 
to the genius of Ayn Rand. I, mean, I know that you were not a Rush fan, whereas everybody else was when we were growing up, but that was kind of a doorway in. And plus, I took Search for Self. It was an elective English class. And really, the only book that I liked that we read in that unit was The Fountainhead. And I think it's designed and best for somebody who is mid to late teens, developing a sense of identity and where they are in the world and really trying to get a sense of who you are and how you deal with other people. And I think that the most valuable part of it is that it gives someone at that point in your life a sense of call to action, I guess, that sort of thing, where you feel like you have to do things. You feel very empowered. The best thing about the whole Ayn Rand philosophy is that, you know, you can't make excuses. You got to do it yourself. You can't depend on other people. And a lot of that is, of course, true. But the way it's delivered is, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> so after you didn't go to this party, Brandon maybe told me, oh, the Ayn Rand. And that day, I just took the copy of the fountainhead and went in my backyard and burned it in a hibachi <laughs> see that was oh the fountainhead you burned what, but it was, that was not sort of the yeah, shrugged ball yeah that came later after my phase right because i hadn't entered the phase yet so i didn't really know what was i just knew oh my friend kevin is not gonna come with us i'm mad stupid book burn the book that was it ah <laughs> the hibachi i didn't know about the burning on hibachi part Okay, so you read it in Mr. Peppy, and I mean, we both kind of know what it's about. And I'm curious, when you were deepest in it, what effect was it having on, say, how you saw other people? Well, that's the thing. It makes you think that it's not so much that you're better than other people. It's more that I don't need other people. One of the things that got me into it was that I, th I think a lot of that is people have this phony sense of charity and phony sense of compassion. The, this, the whole phoniness, right. and this is like complete repudiation of that. And wow, people can think like this and not be a Satan worshiper. Wow, this person was you know, an atheist. You know, I was right. never religious and always very critical of it. But at that time, I hadn't really read much in terms of really much of anything, to tell you the truth. <laughs> that was the Found Bad was really the first full book that I ever read front to back. And I think with me, because I read the Galt speech, and then that was sort of my introduction to justifying your behavior for any reason. Right. <laughs> Having some sort of underlying philosophy to what you were doing. I hadn't done that before. And so all of a sudden I became serious and everything had to be justified. But I don't know how to justify it, really, except in terms of this selfish philosophy that I just read about. And so it really did a job on me for a couple of years. I just couldn't do anything without driving myself crazy thinking about why I was doing it. I was trying to figure out, should I play the blues? Should I still play the blues guitar? Does that make any sense? <laughs> You know, how could I justify? You can't justify. I mean, ultimately, you can't justify anything. That's the whole no reason to exist. I mean, I knew you. You were, you and I were friends and, you know, and pretty good friends, too. And you were not only the cool guitar playing guy, but also quirky and interesting. It was as if you were trying to tamp down on 
on those two things that made you, among other things, that made you cool. And I was like, oh, no, Dan, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done to, just, to encourage Dan to be, you know, the, a less interesting person? Because the characters are so robotic, the ones that you're supposed to idolize. Her characters had airtight reasons for everything they did. And when they talked, it sounded like a philosophical essay. It sounded like perfectly consistent, rational, ironclad arguments for whatever they wanted. It also sounded like they were made of wood. It sounded like this. Thousands of years ago, the first man discovered how to make fire. He was probably burned at the stake he had taught his brothers to light, but he left them a gift they had not conceived, and he lifted darkness off the earth. Throughout the centuries, there were men who took first steps down new roads, armed with nothing but their own vision. The great creators, the thinkers, the artists, the scientists, the inventors, stood alone against the men of their time. Every new thought was opposed. Every new invention was denounced. But the men of unborrowed vision went ahead. They fought, they suffered, and they paid, but they won. That was Gary Cooper in the 1949 adaptation of The Fountainhead. Critics at the time called the movie cold and unemotional. And more than one reviewer described Gary Cooper's performance as wooden. But that's exactly the impression you get of the heroes in Ayn Rand's novels. They had airtight reasons for everything they did. They could prove why they were right to do whatever they were doing. They could prove it from first principles. And if you're 17 years old, and this was the first time you read anything, even vaguely philosophical, it was like a Venus flytrap closing on your mind. You were trapped inside a logical system. Someone had figured life out for you, and they could explain how you should act, what kind of music you should listen to, what kind of people you should be around. And the best people always talked and acted like rational little robots. And Kevin and I thought we had to act like little robots, too. So you said, oh, I'm sure that happened, the thing with the party. Can you remember things like that, that moments, maybe, because I'll share one with you. So I remember when I was in the phase, I saw Norm, Norm the barber. Right. Did you get haircuts from him? Oh, I remember. I remember who Norm. Yeah, yeah. He was a nice guy, and he was sort of a fixture in the town. I see Norm the barber just in some public space when I was with my family, and I was going to be going near him or something, and I was thinking it was sort of a crisis. Is it all right to talk to him? He's not a man of achievement. and all. I was just, you know, wrestling with this, like, oh, God. And then I did say hello to him and he said hi and he's a nice guy and I felt sort of relieved like okay that was the right thing to happen you know but like did you have moments like that with your parents friends yes yeah and I think Gary too because I, I remember one time Bernie and him were going out and I was like no I did the same sort of thing I remember that where I was like no I don't want to do that dope you know <laughs> and it was so why didn't you want to do it because I think it was compromising my integrity and and also at that time, I didn't drink and they drank and that sort of thing, too. And I wanted to be you know, a beacon of integrity and blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. We've been talking about Ayn Rand's influence for a while. Let's hear from the beacon of integrity herself. This is Ayn Rand on The Johnny Carson Show in 1967. And you're saying that man 
should first serve his own self-interests and be interested in himself first? I wouldn't say first. I would say only. But you will have to explain this. Other men can be of interest to an individual if they represent values, moral values. You serve your own interest best by finding, associating with, working with the right kind of people. Therefore, other people can be a value, a great value to a man, but only when and if they correspond to his moral ideas, not otherwise. In other words, man does not have to serve anyone except himself, but he does, in effect, serve others when their interests and their values agree. She sounds a little robotic in that clip, but she was pretty sharp, too. Here she is fending off Phil Donahue in a clip about equal opportunity, employment, and feminism. The point is that they have been denied jobs all these years, so you, let's get at it and start swinging for it. do not fight an evil if they think they're victims. I don't, but uh, let us say, assuming that women have been treated unfairly, you don't fight an evil by adopting it and practicing well, it. Well, what should they do? Be nice little girls and not say anything and stay home and break bread? No. Uh, well, what should they do? Should Go they... into any career of their choice except longshoreman or professional football player as they're trying today and fight for their career as every man has to fight. Would you fight for anything? How did I get here? If Kevin and I had heard her speak, I'm not sure we'd have fallen so deeply into Ayn Rand's philosophy. I'm sorry, but a little chain-smoking lady with a thick Russian accent just wouldn't have seemed like a good role model to two teenage dudes from Connecticut. But there was no YouTube back then, and they didn't have Ayn Rand interviews on VHS at the local video store. We just had the books. And the more we read, it was like Pinocchio in reverse. Instead of a wooden marionette turning into a real boy, we were real boys turning into wooden characters. So do you remember any specific moments of woodenness in your life or observing me? I remember going out during the week, and I remember Gary was like, Kevin, you're not being much of a homie. <laughs> I'm like, a homie? What are you speaking of? So what were you doing that was unhomey like We were just hanging out. And, uh, it was like, hey, you want to go to Milford Arcade and play video games? No. You know, it's a waste of money. I have to save up for blah, 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 or whatever. Right. I don't know. I don't know. It was just some, you know, deciding to go out on a Wednesday is compromising my integrity. That's what it makes life decisions come down to. You decide the simple decision is like you're betraying your integrity. That's dumb. That's so dumb. What were you going to do instead? I don't read the sound head again. I don't know. <laughs> One moment that I don't remember if I told you about this, but I was still in the phase, but there was this weird thing that happened where I had agreed to go see George Carlin with some people. So I already had purchased the ticket, you know, but I felt that I shouldn't go because, well, you know, that's just goofiness. That. <laughs> Right? It sounds right. so crazy. But I thought, oh, I shouldn't go. But then for some reason at the 
you know, in the last day or two, was, all right, I guess I'm going to go because I got the ticket. So I'm going to go, but I'm not going to laugh, of course. I'm just going to sit there and hate it. That was my plan. Of course. I yeah. was planning to right. sit there and just stare at him angrily. And then he killed me within a minute. I was crying, laughing the whole time. <laughs> Good. Did you ever try to pick up a suitcase you thought was full, but it wasn't? And you go, Boom. And for just a split second, you feel really strong. Thanks, George. I don't think Kevin and I really wanted to act like that. We thought we had to. We'd been convinced by our first dose of logic. I wanted to talk to the barber and play blues guitar and do quirky things, but I couldn't justify it in the way Ayn Rand could justify everything. So Kevin and I were imprisoned by Ayn Rand's ideas, and that's why I made a book into a ball. I was mad at it because it was hurting me. And today we could tell you all the ways Ayn Rand is wrong, but a prison break starts with something really small, like a paper clip slipped into a pocket, or a tiny crack under a door. And the little thing, the tiny little thing which saved Kevin and I, is almost unbelievable. One thing that cannot be overlooked in in our abandonment of yeah, uh, I think I know where of, you're going uh, with this. Yes, I think you know where you're going, and I think I mean I think this was more as important as anything else. But in, of course, the Romantic Manifesto, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where uh, the you know tap dancing is the the highest form of art of the dance, <laughs> the highest expression. Of the dance. Yes. <laughs> and that was as quoted in the Ayn Rand lexicon also. I think that's yes. where I found it. Right. Yeah. And well that was the thing. That was the that was the the base piece in the, the game of Jenga. In Ayn Rand's nineteen sixty nine treatise on art, the Romantic Manifesto, which Kevin and I both read at least parts of it, she talks about tap dancing. She says I want to mention a form of dancing that has not been developed into a full system, but possesses the key elements on which a full, distinctive system could be built. Tap dancing. It is singularly appropriate to America and distinctly un-European. Its best exponents are Bill Robinson and Fred Astaire, who combines it with some elements of the ballet. This goes on for a while, and it ends with this. It conveys a sense of purpose, discipline, clarity, a mathematical kind of clarity combined with an unlimited freedom of movement and an inexhaustible inventiveness that dares the sudden, the unexpected, yet never loses the central integrating line, the music's rhythm. No, the emotional range of tap dancing is not unlimited. It cannot express tragedy or pain or fear or guilt. All it can express is gaiety and every shade of emotion pertaining to the joy of living. Yes, it is my favorite form of the dance. So, she was going to try to convince us 
that we had to like tap dancing. That tap dancing was the highest form of the dance. And that would be a fact of our lives. And folks, that wasn't going to happen. So now there's a big ball of paper in my basement. And you're listening to a podcast called No Reason to Exist. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy this podcast and listen to it, I guess you have to listen to it in order to enjoy it. If you listen to it and enjoy it, please support it at patreon.com slash no reason to exist. No reason to exist.